We're going to continue to be in Rev- our study in Revelation. If you turn your Bibles to Revelation 9, that's where we're going to be today, verses 13 through 20. We've noted from early in this study that there are two kingdoms at play here in Revelation. And really in our world today, it's just indicating what we already feel and know, that tension that there are two competing kingdoms. The the kingdom of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the kingdom that He came to establish when He became flesh and dwelt among us, and He initiated that kingdom in that moment. It was uh, to come and to come against the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of death and sin. The kingdom of God is characterized by truth and righteousness. The kingdom of Satan is codified by deception and wickedness leading to destruction. And we've been talking about that. We talked about that last week. In John chapter 8, 44, Jesus called Satan the father of lies. Satan is where deception originates. He's crafty and has shown himself to be again and again deceptive, a liar, tempting, the tempter, the accuser. And these are things that we know, that we, whether we know them because we've grown up in church and heard these types of things, or we just know them because we feel them. We feel that tension. We feel that desire. We feel that craftiness, that temptation seeking to lead us away, lead us into its, uh, into its lure, into its trap. And we continually fall into that trap of sin. We as a people, we as a culture, but we individually and even the church tempted again and again, and if we are not careful, his lies are so crafty, his deception is so keen and so alluring that we fall again and again. Temptation is a lie. Sin is a lie. Satan offers the promise of pleasure and fulfillment, but in the end, it will end up getting us burned figuratively and one day literally. And that brings us to the end of chapter 9. We see the destruction that comes at the hands of this kingdom, Satan, his kingdom, and the forces that he has at his at his disposal. Here in this chapter, we see that they're all mounted on horses, and it's out of their mouths that they are burning up the world around them. I want to read this passage, and then I want to see, we see two things very clearly, that the burn of deception, and we see the sting of idolatry. Would you join me in reading the word of the Lord Chapter 9, 
verse 13. The sixth angel blew his trumpet. From the four horns of the golden altar that is before God, I heard a voice say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels bound at the great Euph uh, river Euphrates. Say that one five times fast. At the great river Euphrates. There we go. So the four angels, angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of the human race. The number of mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. This is how I saw the horses and their riders in the vision. They had breastplates that were fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and from their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of the human race was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur that came out of their mouths. For the, for the power of the horses in their, is in their mouths and in their tails, because their tails, which resemble snakes, have heads that inflict injury. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see here or walk. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In this passage, we see a warning about the ramifications of falling into the enemy's lies and his de deception. Satan deceives us and his lies will burn to death. That's what we see. The first thing we see here in this passage is that Satan deceives us and his lies will burn to death. I think it's important at this moment to remind ourselves who this was written to. This, this letter, all 21 chapters, were written to a group of Christians that met in Asia, in Asia Minor. And they met within seven local churches. Remember, we are peeking into what God showed John through a vision, and John was trying to convey to them, to help them to understand what lied ahead of them, what was in front of them, what they had to endure, and to give them courage to face it. But it was also a warning. Part of it was to encourage, but in part, it was to rebuke them. John is reminding those seven churches that Satan is a crafty liar, and they need to be careful not to follow his lies, because his lies will end in ruin. The church of Ephesus was more in love with the things about Jesus than Jesus. They listen to the lie from Satan that says, you must know enough doctrine and theology to be pleasing to God, and that's all you need. You need to know a lot about him. But Jesus said, you left my first love. You left your first love. You've left me. Satan's lie is that we need more than Jesus, and Jesus says we need him and him only. I'm not saying that theology is not important, the doctrine is not important. I have, I have theology degrees. I went to school and paid a lot of money for that so I could have a piece of paper on my wall, all right? Theology is important. Doctrine is important, but it is not the most important. What we know about Jesus does not get to trump the love we have for Jesus. 
And that's a fine line that we have to be careful to draw in our own lives. Satan would have us believe, the more you know, the better off that you are. That's the lie, and that's the lie that Ephesus was rebuked for. The church of Thyatira tolerated sexual immorality and listened to Satan's lies that God's way and God's design was somehow flawed. He didn't know what he was doing. That's the lie from Satan. Sardis, the church at Sardis, lacked spiritual vitality, believing the lie that cold, dead religion was acceptable to God, and it's not. Laodicea, the church there, was so tied to the world around them, it weakened their faith. They were lukewarm, not worth anything. They believed the lie that you can have one foot in Satan's kingdom and one foot in God's, and you can't. John knew, Jesus knew, that these churches, these Christians needed a reminder of what following Satan's lies eventually leads to. And there's a warning here for Lafayette first as well. We must not heed Satan's lies and temptations. We must stand firm on the true word of God and nothing else. Because look what happens in this passage when lies prevail. Fire, smoke, and sulfur. You will be burned. This is why James told us to flee from sin and resist the devil. And Peter reminds us to be sober-minded because Satan is prowling around seeking whom he may devour. He wants to still kill and destroy you and me. And he wants to still kill and destroy the message of God, the message of Christ. He wants to still kill and destroy the mission of God, the gospel of God that saved a little girl this week that can save you today from whatever sin that befalls you. Satan would love to put that to a stop. Satan would love to come and intersect what God is doing in the midst of this congregation, in the midst of this church, and the, the footprint for the gospel that we have and we are gaining in this community, and he would love to stop it at all costs. And so we must be careful not to listen to the lies, the lies of disunity, the lies of... Let me have my way and do my thing the way that I want, and you can have your thing the way you want, but, but that we would not listen to his lies, that we would not let him come in and try to steal and kill and destroy what God is doing in our midst, but that we would, that we would as a body, unite and say, we will stand on the word of God, and we will stand on Jesus Christ with us. That is what matters the most, and that is what the world around us needs. And the gospel still saves today. It's just as powerful as it, as it has ever been. And may we hear and heed God's word and stand upon it when it says, that he will build his church and the gates of hell can't prevail against it. That's the kind of power we have for us and at our disposal. And if we heed the lies of Satan, it'll just burn up. The second thing that we see here, if we believe him, 
Satan, that is, his idols will leave a stinging wound. So anytime that we see Satan and his forces open in their mouths, we know it's a lie. We know it. We've been studying spiritual warfare on Wednesday nights, and I invite you to come. That's what we're going to study this whole uh, semester for our advanced class. We're going to continue looking through the scriptures to look at spiritual warfare so that we can prepare ourselves as a church body to stand firm. And we've been doing that. We've been looking at the Old Testament. And guess what? From the very beginning, from the very first book of the Bible, Satan speaks, and what comes out of his mouth? Lies. Lies. And the lies that he tells us is that you don't need God. All you need is you. You can be your own God. You can do whatever you want, and there will be no ramifications for it. That are, those are lies. Lies straight from the mouth of Satan. If Satan has opened his mouth, lies come forth. But we also see that Satan is a crafty serpent, a crafty snake. We saw that from the very beginning. And what he does stings, and it, it leaves a wound in our lives. So not only do we notice the mouths of Satan's minions spreading lies that burn, but we see their snake-like tails stinging people. This passage uh, from Revelation calls back to a time where Moses was in the wilderness with the people of God, and they had rather been in Egypt. God had led them out of slavery, led them into the wilderness, led them to understand who he was. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them himself to say, I'm here for you. I'm with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll go before you with a pillar of fire. I'll go behind you. Uh, I'll come before you with a, a pillar of cloud, of smoke. I'll come behind you with a, a pillar of fire. I'll surround you and encapsulate you. I'll let you walk through a river on dry ground. I will be with you. When you're hungry, I'll provide you manna from heaven. I'll give you water from a rock when there's no source of water around. I will care for you. And they didn't care for it. They wanted to go back to Egypt, to slavery, to eat steak, they said, because manna from heaven, you know, wasn't a good enough. I mean, I've eaten some pretty good steaks in my life, but if bread is falling from heaven, I'm going to be like, I'm going to eat that. But they wanted all that Egypt, all that their last life, all that the kingdom of this world had to offer rather than the kingdom of God. And so God sent snakes among, among their midst, biting them, inflicting them with a wound, inflicting them with pain. And Moses was instructed to raise a bronze snake up for the people to look at instead. And when they looked at the, the thing that God ordained and said, this is the thing that you should look at, then their wounds were healed. This was a shadow of Christ because Jesus himself indicates to Nicodemus in the third chapter of the book of John that he himself must be lifted up like that snake to draw men and women unto himself as those who looked at the snake were healed so too anyone who looks to Christ will be healed from their affliction healed from their wound healed from the stinging pain of the temptation of sin and what, what the kingdom of this world has to offer 
The same thing that afflicted the Israelites in the wilderness afflicts those who are given over to worshiping Satan and his ways in his kingdom. The Israelites pined for the land of their slavery, Egypt. They'd rather be in the bondage to the kingdom of this world than in servitude to the king of all kings. And the same is true in the end. And look what happens as people looked and watched, as people look and watch this taking place. Verse 20 says, The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not from repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. They continued worshiping the kingdom of this world instead of looking to the one that could have saved them for it all, saved them from it all. We must be careful that we do not allow the kingdom of this world to infiltrate our own lives and to influence our own lives to worship of someone else or something else other than Christ. You see, Jesus was raised. He was raised on the cross. He was raised up like that bronze serpent so that anyone who believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, Jesus in this moment is being lifted up in front of you today. Will you look to him and be healed of your sin sickness? And we ask Jesus to heal your wounds by his blood. By the time that we, by the time of what we just read happens, it will be too late. But today it is not. Trust in Jesus today. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us not to be like the church in Laodicea that thought that they could be lukewarm and that'd be all right. They could live a little bit in the world, live a little bit for you, and you'd just be fine with that. This type of complacency plagues churches all over the world today. May that not be true of us. May we, Lord, as you are lifted up, may we look to you May we push aside all things that the enemy would love to allure us with and may we look to Christ to see you face to face, Lord. To understand that if we gaze at your face, Lord, the world grows strangely dim around us. I don't know if someone is here today, Lord, that 
maybe understands what we've talked about today, that tension of the enemy and the alluring nature of that and sin and temptation to live according to their ways and not yours. And maybe, Lord, and I pray that you have, that you've shown them today their need to look to Christ raised on the cross, sacrificed for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could have life everlasting. And so, God, I pray that you would help that person or those people in this room today to look to Christ and to be cleansed from their sins, to be cleansed of their iniquities, to be made right in you today. God, would you press upon someone's heart today to trust you? Perhaps in this room there are a lot of us like me. It's real easy to live my life and go through the Christian motions from time to time. All the while more concerned about what this life has to offer. Lord, would you convict us of that and help us, Lord, to repent and turn to Christ and to live our lives fully concerned mostly about your kingdom. Your word says that we should be in this world and not of it, though. And that's hard to do. Because like Peter, when he was walking toward you on the water, as long as he had his eyes fixed on you, he was fine. But when he looked at the, the surrounding waves around him, that's when he sunk. And we do that too, Lord, because we get distracted from looking at you and look at all the things around us. Help us to keep our gaze fixed on you. In this moment right now, Lord, as we are about to sing of your deep love, help us, help us to respond however you've called us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? And as you stand, we're going to sing. And as we sing, I pray that God is moving in your heart.